boy howdy have I got a story for you. This is probably the the most interesting topic I have ever researched so far. I think this is my favorite story that I will be telling. Um, but before I just flat out tell you what it's about, I have to tell you how I got here. Um, so I'm a person that listens to a lot of podcasts, as you could probably guess. I pretty much have them on in the background all day while I'm working, while I'm driving, while I'm doing laundry. Um, and so I've been listening to this one for a long time, and it's called Behind the Bastards. Oh yeah, and by the way, listener discretion for this episode, there's going to be all sorts of raunchy stuff in here. We are going for a wild ride, so maybe not the best one for the kiddos. Uh, but yeah, the show is called Behind the Bastards. And it's super funny, but they he has on all these great guests, and they just talk about some of the worst people in history. Well, the other day they were talking about this man named Paul Schaefer. Now stay with me here, because I promise I'll get to the Kentucky connection. Paul Schaefer was a Nazi colonel who had to flee from Germany after being accused of abusing two little boys whom he was supposed to be helping since his role at the time was young people's leader for the Evangelical Free Church. So he leaves Germany and he goes to Chile and he takes a bunch of his followers with him. Okay, he's pretty much a cult leader before he ever gets to Chile. He's very charismatic, very persuasive. So in Chile, he sets up something called the Colonio Dignidad, Colonia Dignidad, with the support of the Chilean government. And he thought that this would be a good place to set up shop because he'd been taught that the nuclear apocalypse was going to take out most of the developed world. And he got all these followers to relocate to this religious, off-the-grid compound that he had set up on a farm in Chile. And the place turns into an absolute nightmare. Okay, He was smuggling in guns from Germany. He was separating the children from their parents and giving them extremely strict, strict rules to follow. And then it turns out he and his assistants were actually stealing children, like from hospitals, and molesting them. So, some of this might sound reminiscent of another cult leader, Jim Jones, uh, Jonestown. And if you made that connection, you are spot on. Because a man who inspired Jim Jones also inspired this Paul Schaefer guy. And the man who inspired both of these dangerous cult leaders was none other than Kentucky native William Branham. William Marion Branham was born on April 6, 1909, near Burksville, Kentucky. Burksville is in Cumberland County, bordered by the Cumberland River to the south and east. He was the oldest of ten children born to Charles and Ella Harvey Branham. He would later claim that when he was born, quote, a light come whirling through the window about the size of a pillow and circled around where I was and went down on the bed. He claimed he had mystical experiences from an early age. When he was three, he heard a voice calling to him from a tree, telling him that he would live near a city called New Albany, and that was the year his family moved to Jeffersonville, which is right next to New Albany, Indiana. And then when he was seven, God told him to avoid smoking and drinking alcohol, and so he never, ever did those things. 
He said he grew up in deep poverty and called his childhood a terrible life. Neighbors remembered him as dependable, but a little different. He said that his, quote, mystical experiences and moral purity kind of alienated him as a kid. He was the black sheep. He didn't have a lot of close friends, and he really wasn't super close with his own family. When he was 14, he was involved in a firearms incident, whatever that means, and he was shot in both legs. He was in really bad shape, and his family couldn't afford the medical expenses. So, the Ku Klux Klan stepped in and offered to help pay for his hospital stay. And so, young teenage William Branham is thinking, wow, these guys are great. What a, what a genuine group of guys. And this experience was something that would stick with him for the rest of his life. William's father, Charles Branham, owned a farm near Utica, but took a job with R.E. Waven Distilleries in Louisville. Waven was a supplier for Al Capone's bootlegging operations. You guys know about the tunnels? We'll talk about the tunnels at some point. William Branham said that sometimes he would have to help his father with the illegal production and distribution of alcohol during Prohibition, which landed his father in prison in 1924. And by 19 years old, William Branham was ready to head out into the world in search of a more promising life. He didn't want to take that same path as his criminal father. So that year, he went to Phoenix, where he worked as a rancher, and allegedly became a pretty good boxer. Then tragedy struck when one of his brothers was charged with the murder of a Jeffersonville man, and then his brother died of a sudden illness shortly after that. So Branham went home for his brother's funeral in 1929. Branham's family was not a particularly religious one, so that funeral may have been the first time he really sat through and listened to some prayers. He didn't go back to Phoenix after that. Instead, he got a job with the Public Service Company of Indiana, and he was involved in an accident where he almost died from being overcome by gas. And it's pretty common, I think, for people to feel closer to God or want to feel closer to God after an NDE, but Branham said that he heard a voice during his near-death experience, and that led him to want to find some answers about God. He converted to Christianity and started going to the first Pentecostal Baptist church in Jeffersonville. The pastor there was a guy named Roy Davis. Roy Davis was a founding member of the second Ku Klux Klan and a leading recruiter for the organization. Davis would later become the National Imperial Wizard of the KKK. Roy Davis had relocated his church to Jeffersonville after being run out of Louisville for criminal legal trouble. So this Roy Davis is the guy who baptizes William Branham. And a short six months later, Branham was ordained as an independent Baptist minister and an elder in his church. Which, it's like, it's going all in so fast. I mean, that's a lot of commitment in a short amount of time. But... Before we go on, I do want to stop and tell you a few more details about Roy Davis, because 
This guy was a major influence of, and close friend to, William Branham during those formative years when Branham was really learning about what he was getting into. Roy Davis was born in Texas. When he was 22, he started preaching. And in 1912, he started selling these electric rings that he claimed could cure rheumatism. He was later arrested for that and indicted for fraud. He joined the KKK in 1915, and the next year, he went on a forgery crime spree with his brothers, who were basically a gang. And he would go into banks presenting himself as a minister, which he was, and cash fraudulent checks from his brother, who was pretending to be a businessman. They did this multiple times, and eventually the police were after them, so Roy Davis abandoned his wife and children to flee the state. He went to Georgia, got married, but was recognized and turned in, so he was sentenced to two years of jail time. And then instead of going back to his family, he returns to Georgia and reassumes his alias and gets a job as a minister. Eventually, though, the church finds out that he's been using them to recruit for the Klan, and they learn all about his past, and they're like, yeah, you gotta go. Uh, Then he gets caught for writing a bad check for a $1,000 printing press that he was going to use for his publication, The Progress. So he's on the run again. He takes his new wife and daughter and goes to Oklahoma, where he keeps preaching and keeps recruiting for the Klan. He starts recruiting throughout the South, making a ton of money on membership fees. In 1922, he's connected to a burglary in Waco. He's accused of stealing firearms from U.S. Marshals, and he's connected to some other criminal investigation in Louisiana in 1923. That's also the year he becomes editor of the Klan publication, The Brick Bat. And someone he targeted in that publication filed charges against him for libel. But he made bond and was back out recruiting the very same day. He tried to start a Pentecostal church in Tennessee, but there was tension with other church leaders, and he ended up threatening some of them. So one filed charges against him, and he was arrested but released on bond shortly after. He was supposed to stand trial for that, but instead he fled to Louisville, Kentucky, where he reformed the First Pentecostal Baptist Church on Jefferson Street. He gained publicity after he penned an article in the Courier-Journal voicing his opposition to prohibition, which is interesting since Branham is very pro-temperance. The problem was, in March of 1930, Davis got caught defrauding multiple people by soliciting donations to a fake charity. He was jailed, but released on bail again, because remember, he made a ton of money on Klan membership fees. So after that, he had to cross the river and move his church to Jeffersonville, Indiana. He hosted healing meetings under tents and published stuff in local papers, but there was another problem. He had abandoned his second family and was living with a 17-year-old girl named Allie Lee Garrison. 
This time, he was arrested mid-service in front of his congregation and taken into federal custody in Louisville, where he was charged in federal court and indicted for violating laws prohibiting the trafficking of minors under the Mann Act. He fought the charges, claiming that he was her foster father, and the charges were dropped. Later, he would go on to marry Allie Garrison. He was arrested in 1931 for soliciting donations under false pretenses, extradited to Kentucky, but he privately paid the accusers and the charges were again dropped. That was two years after William Branham had joined his church. Davis was connected to a scheme in 1938, soliciting money for a fake charity, and he was arrested in Newport. In 1939, Arkansas authorities tried to extradite him there to charge him for a murder, and he did spend some time in prison in Arkansas. I'm a little unclear what exactly happened there, but he got released in 1942, and that's when he met Congressman William Upshaw, and I want you to keep that name in your back pocket. Roy Davis got in trouble again in 1944. One of the charges was impersonating an FBI agent. Um, It was also grand theft. The charges were dropped. He continued writing bad checks throughout the 50s and 60s. He endorsed Nixon heavily in 1960. That tracks. Uh, He's still recruiting for the Klan in the 60s. And he was even questioned by the FBI in the investigation of the JFK assassination. So he was actually a person of interest. So... That is who had essentially become William Branham's mentor. Now let's get back to Branham's story. Branham has had this near-death experience. He's not super happy with the way his life has gone up to this point, and he's looking for some answers and he finds them in the form of Roy Davis and his church. In the late 20s, early 30s, this church he joined was a nominally Baptist church that adhered to some Pentecostal doctrines, including divine healing and speaking in tongues. Um, They also believed in oneness, Pentecostalism. This is not really my strong suit. I'm not, not good with religious doctrines and things like that, but... From what I understand, this just means that instead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they just believe in one Jesus, and that all those other people are just three manifestations of the one Jesus, I think. Sorry if I botched that. Anyway, this part of his story gets a little convoluted, because he said that he was opposed to Pentecostalism in the early years of his ministry, but his biographer says he was exposed to and open to the idea of Pentecostalism from his conversion, and that he just hid his early connections to Pentecostalism to make his conversion story more compelling to his audiences during the years of his healing revivals. Um, But this this biographer, um, Doug Weaver, who studied Branham's life like crazy, believes that Branham actually embellished a lot about his early life. There's historical documentation of lots of things that contradict what he would tell his audiences. Anyway, 
1933, um, that was kind of a big year for Branham. He started hosting his tent revival meetings that were sponsored by the Klan guy, Roy Davis, and the church. And they gained some traction. People were starting to get into it. He said that on June 11th of that year, they were out by the river in Jeffersonville doing their thing, baptizing people. Um, and then this bright light descended over him. And this voice told him, quote, as John the Baptist was sent to forerun the first coming of Jesus Christ, so your message will forerun his second coming. That's pretty serious stuff. In the spring of 1934, the first Pentecostal Baptist church was destroyed in a fire. Uh, Branham had a lot of supporters by that time, and, and they helped him organize a new church. And he started by preaching out of a tent at 8th and Pratt Street in Jeffersonville. But by 1935, the congregation had built a new church on the same location as his tent meetings a few years prior. The original name of the church, as it was reported in the newspapers, was the Pentecostal Tabernacle. It was officially registered as the Billy Branham Pentecostal Tabernacle in November of 1936. Branham was pastor there for a long time. And at first, the church did not do that well. The local economy wasn't great. Um, people didn't have a lot of spare money. But Branham didn't think that's why it was failing. He thought it was because he was being punished by God for failing to embrace Pentecostalism. Or at least, that's what he would later tell his audiences. All this time that he's getting into religion and building up this church, he's also courting a woman. He started dating Amelia Hope Brumbach in 1933, and they got married the next year. They had their first child, William Billy Paul Branham, in September of 1935. And then Amelia was diagnosed with pulmonary tuberculosis in January of 36, which is just three years after she and William had started dating. Her health starts to decline, but they have a second child anyway, Sharon Rose, born October 27, 1936. You all are probably familiar with what happened in 1937, a terrible, insane flood. Anything near the Ohio River was underwater, the church was badly impacted, and the Branhams were displaced from their home. So all of a sudden, Branham has a very sick wife, two young kids, no house, work is underwater. Uh, but by March, the floodwaters receded, and Branham could go back to work. It's noted on their website uh, that although the building was completely submerged in water, his Bible was still sitting exactly where it was left on the pulpit, completely dry and seemingly untouched. A few months went by, and then on July 22nd, 1937, Amelia passed away. And then four days later, their youngest child, Sharon Rose, also passed away. From tuberculosis. Branham would go on to tell his audiences that the death of his wife and daughter were just punishment for him not embracing Pentecostalism. In the years following the death of his wife and daughter, Branham started traveling more. 
he got a taste for what it was like to go on tour with his tent revival meetings. But by 1941, he'd married his second wife and they had three kids together, Rebecca, Sarah, and Joseph. There's this video from 1953 where some group from LA comes to Jeffersonville to tour Branham's home and interview him. And when they enter the home, Branham says, may I present my wife? But he doesn't even say her name. And then when she stands up, there's this awkward moment where she doesn't know if she's like supposed to or allowed to shake their hands. And so she like kind of cowers and hesitates and oh, it's just cringy. And it's harder to find information about this second wife, but her name was Maida Broy, and here's how they met. Branham's first wife and daughter had just passed away, and Maida was a young neighbor girl. She was 17 or 18 years old, and she would come over and help William take care of his son. Branham was 10 years her senior, And it may have started out innocently enough, but it turned into something more serious. And according to the couple, God gave them permission, said it was acceptable, and instructed them to get married, specifically on October 23rd. Now, Branham already had this hunting trip planned, and he couldn't afford an extra trip for a honeymoon, so he took Maida and his son with him on his hunting trip, and that was their honeymoon super romantic. It is truly difficult to find more information about Maida, and you can't ignore the glaring fact that while these people were so good at documenting everything else, everything Branham thought, did, said, everywhere he went, they did not give a shit about women. And you will see that throughout this episode, and it gets much, much worse. But by that point, even with a family, he knew that the traveling revival was really going to be the moneymaker. He could grow that fan base. And so he starts going from town to town, setting up and performing these miracles. And they got huge, and they were all the rage in the 40s and 50s, and Branham sort of became their, quote, unlikely leader. In 1942, he was having a revival meeting in Milltown, Indiana, and it was reported that he cured a girl with tuberculosis. And a family in Missouri who heard about that invited him to come pray for their child who was suffering from a similar illness. And he said that he healed that child as well. Word eventually spread to a man named W.E. Kidston, who was editor of something called, and I'm sorry, I struggle with this word, the... Apostolic Herald? Apostolic? The Apostolic Herald? Anyway, this Kidston guy was kind of a big deal in the Pentecostal movement. And so this guy gets in touch with Branham and is like, Hey, kid, you're gonna be a star, but you need management. So he becomes Branham's early manager. Now, I think it's important to note at this point that the United States has entered World War II. And it is a great time to take advantage of people and tell them that you can heal them and you can save them and that you have all the answers. That is what people are eager to hear at that time period. Okay, so the first really big meeting with Branham acting as a faith healer was in 1946. Thousands of people in attendance. 
Um, he had one in June of 46 that was considered the inauguration of the healing revival period. It lasted 12 days. It drew over 4,000 people asking him to pray for them. It got him a ton of media coverage. It made him famous in those circles. And after, he launched a tour of small, oneness Pentecostal churches across the South and Midwest. This resulted in tons of reports of healing, as well as one resurrection. So apparently he made a zombie somewhere. In August, he had a meeting in Arkansas that drew a crowd of over 25,000 people from 28 states. It's bananas. Now here's something kind of interesting. From the start, Branham's revivals were interracial and were noted for their, quote, racial openness in a time of segregation. This is especially interesting in the areas he was touring, mostly in the South and Midwest. If there were segregation laws in the towns he visited, they would just set up a rope down the middle, separating the two races in the crowd. Historians have noted that some venues would host these interracial revivals and then host a clan meeting a few days before or after, and this caused some tension. Also, according to historians, clan recruitment was being, quote, covertly conducted through Branham's ministry. But, you know, as long as, as someone's tithing, he's going to heal whoever, right? Um, money is money. But all signs point to, yes, they were low-key trying to recruit for the clan. Okay. Now, in the late 40s, Branham also met a man named Gordon Lindsay, important character in this story. Gordon Lindsay becomes his new manager. He becomes his publicist. And he happened to be a very good publicist for Branham. Together, they founded Voice of Healing magazine. And then they took the party to Canada, where they set up for a healing revival that drew over 70,000 people over a span of 14 days. This was a busy time for Branham, and it did catch up with him. He suffered from exhaustion, and he had a nervous breakdown that required a stay at the Mayo Clinic. This illness happened to coincide with the timing of several allegations that he and his healing revivals were fraudulent. In 1948, he did announce that he would be taking a break, but by October of that year, he was back in action, although without Gordon Lindsay, with whom he'd had a temporary falling out. And at that time, Lindsay actually buddied up with Oral Roberts and started working with him for a while. But then in November, Branham had a meeting with Lindsay and a few others, and he said, Listen, guys, I've had a visit from an angel who told me what I have to do next. I got to do a couple more meetings in the U.S., and then I've got to take this thing international. And I'm sure Gordon Lindsay was thinking, well, that sounds lucrative. I'm in. But before we talk about Branham going international, I, I want to talk about what Branham did during these revival meetings, what, what they looked like. So one thing about revival preachers during that time was that they were typically outgoing, loud, theatric, kind of over the top. 
Branham typically wasn't like that. He was a calmer person. He was usually pretty quiet, very simple. And what drew people in wasn't his performance, but his claims that he'd had all these visits from angels and that he was in constant communication with God. He was also really smart about never touching on anything that may have been controversial within the religions he was speaking to. So during these healing revivals, he would only talk about the, quote, great evangelical truths, so as not to alienate any part of his audience. You'll see that changes later in his life. But here's what you might witness if you attended one of these big revival healing meetings. You'd arrive and take your seat, and then the first portion would be one of Branham's colleagues preaching an evangelical sermon. They would get the crowd warmed up, and then Branham would come up and deliver usually a pretty short sermon. Um, Typically, he would relate his own life stories to his sermon, which I, I guess is pretty common. And then he would call upon God to, quote, confirm his message with two or three faith inspired miracles. And then once he'd asked the man upstairs for a little help, they would ask the audience to submit prayer cards with their names, address, and the condition they wanted healed. So then Branham's team would take all these cards, sort through them, pick a certain number of them, and then have them all line up, okay, the prayer line. And when you worked your way up to the front, Branham would say a personal prayer for you, and then most of the time he would declare that you were healed on the spot. He would also tell his crowds that he would go home and pray for more people overnight. And then the next day they would need to come back, get up on stage and show everybody that they had been healed too. Because remember at this point, he's got crowds in the thousands and he can't be standing there praying for everyone in line. So they had to figure out a way to be more time efficient. Another thing he would do is pick out a few people sitting in the audience who hadn't been chosen for the prayer line, and he would call out their names and declare them healed as well. So there is a bit of showmanship there, if you ask me. Um, But beyond that, he said there were two elements to this that allowed him to do what he did. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One part of it was that an angel would make him feel vibrations in his hand when he touched the hand of a sick person. And these vibrations would give him an indication of what kind of sickness this person had. The other element was this word of knowledge gift, which according to one of his colleagues allowed him to quote, see and enable him to tell the many events of people's lives from their childhood down to the present. He was one of the first of his kind to claim this ability, and so it made him sort of a legend. And as you'll see, he was considered by many the prophet of his generation. 
Another thing he would do is perform exorcisms at the meetings. He would cast out the evil spirits and, you know, he would insist that the crowds bow their head during the exorcism so that the demonic spirits didn't hop out of one person and jump into you. You gotta cover all your bases when you're doing exorcisms. So Branham comes into the 1950s on a high horse and he rides that horse to Houston, Texas. Big, big event for for Mr. Branham. So on January 24th, 1950, he gets into a heated debate with a local Baptist minister named W.E. Best. Best was questioning his abilities about his his divine healing abilities. He he was like, I'm not so sure that you're you can really do what you're claiming to do. And during the argument, a photographer snaps a photo. And in this photo, you can see a light above Branham's head. It's kind of behind his head. And it's very obviously a glare from the overhead lighting. But of course, Branham insisted, oh no, that is supernatural. That is a divine vindication of my ministry. And his followers ate it up. You can find the picture if you need to see what I'm talking about, and I'll post it on the website. Um, But you can just search William Branham Light, and it'll come up. He had a framed copy of it on display in his hunting den. This was a big deal to him because he said that was the light that followed him all his life. Another win came Branham's way in 1951 when former U.S. Congressman William Upshaw was referred to Branham by Roy Davis. If you'll remember, I told you to keep Upshaw's name in your back pocket. He's the one that met Roy Davis, I believe out in California, and they set up this charity together that Roy Davis ended up getting in trouble for defrauding. So that's how they met. And so Upshaw met with Branham and was healed of a disability he'd had for nearly 60 years after an accident. Cut and dry, right? Let me tell you a little bit about Congressman Upshaw. He was such a strong proponent of the temperance movement that he was commonly referred to as, quote, the driest of guys. He was strongly against federal anti-lynching bills. He was a Georgia representative and a staunch defender of the KKK, which was founded in his congressional district. Just super racist and terrible. So he and Branham had a lot in common. He ran for president in 1932 on the Prohibition Party ticket and lost. But what you really need to know about Upshaw is his medical history. In 1895, he fell off a wagon, injuring his back. He was in a wheelchair for years, but he gradually regained the ability to walk with crutches. Over time, his condition improved, and he told newspapers that he was able to walk several steps without crutches. In Congress, some opponents accused him of using the crutches as, quote, part of a costume to elicit sympathy and support from voters. This is a pretty serious accusation, but it was made because several people witnessed Upshaw running at the U.S. Capitol without any crutches. Upshaw moved to California 
and he became an ordained minister in 1938 when he was 72 years old, and he met Roy Davis, and together they opened an orphanage in San Bernardino County. However, this ended in scandal when it was revealed that they had swindled donors out of their money. So fast forward several years after that, Upshaw is 85 years old. He's not in great overall health. He knows he's probably going to kick the bucket soon, and he goes to one of Branham's healing meetings. After he's, quote, healed, he writes a letter to every member of Congress. But then, later on, the LA Times reported that Upshaw admitted to reporters that he had absolutely been able to walk without crutches before the Branham meeting. But that encounter had just given him extra strength that he didn't have before. Mm-hmm. He died a few months later, but not without helping secure Branham's legacy first. I figured that story needed to be put in perspective, so there you have it. After the Upshaw incident, Branham was even more solidified as a legit healer. But after that, there were a lot of journalists in attendance at these meetings, and while a few of them were genuinely accepting of his practices, most of the press was bad. But it didn't seem to matter. At that point, Branham was kind of too big to fail. So he went overseas, he had meetings in Finland, Sweden, Norway, Most of the churches were actually not very accepting of him, but it didn't matter because the public wanted to see him. His meetings outside the U.S. typically got crowds of somewhere around 7,000 people, except for in South Africa. And this is insane. He hosted a meeting in South Africa that drew over 200,000 people in 1952, the biggest crowd of his career. By 1954, he'd also been to Portugal, Italy, and India. His last international tour was in 1955 and included visits to Switzerland and Germany. I guess Branham kind of thought that he could get away with majorly embellishing his experiences overseas and that people back home wouldn't know the difference. Let me give you some examples. He claimed to have met with King George VI and to pray for him on his way to Finland in 1950, and he claimed that he healed him. There is no evidence that Branham ever came into contact with King George, and the king died a year later anyway from a chronic illness. He claimed to heal Florence Nightingale's granddaughter at a London airport. His campaign actually released these photos of an emaciated woman that they claimed was Nightingale's granddaughter. Florence Nightingale didn't have grandchildren. Investigators never did figure out who the woman in the picture was. How creepy and weird is that? He claimed he healed King Gustav V in Sweden in April of 1950. There's no evidence they ever met, and King Gustav died in October of 1950. He said he met with King Farouk in Egypt in 1954 on his way to India, King Farouk wasn't in Egypt at the time Branham says he met with him. It was harder to investigate his healing business because 
They didn't keep any records of the people he was healing during these meetings. And even though they would collect their addresses, they weren't following up with these people. They would go to their town, claim to heal them, and then leave. So there's no documentation of any of it. It's hard to investigate. What we do know is that they encouraged people to claim they were healed even if they were still having the same symptoms as a profession of their commitment to their faith. So you're only a true believer if you profess that you have been healed, whether you really have been or not. And you know, don't question it because then you're not, you're not a real believer and you're not going to be saved. And he'd tell them that their symptoms probably wouldn't go away until several days after the meeting, which just gave him some wiggle room, right? To get away. And, uh, yeah, they'd be long gone by the time anything was ever discovered. So there were some reporters who were onto him from the start, like I mentioned. So um, there was an incident back in 1947 in Illinois where he claimed to have healed a deaf mute. And then when people realized he wasn't healed, Branham said it was the guy's own fault because Branham had told him he needed to quit smoking and he didn't. And that's why he hadn't healed. At one of his meetings in Canada, he thought he could get away with telling his audience he'd brought a man back from the dead in a funeral parlor in Jeffersonville, Indiana. Obviously, investigators found no evidence of a resurrection. There was no funeral parlor in the area that knew of any such thing happening. And you think that would be something they'd remember. Often when reporters asked Branham to respond to all these allegations of fraud, he just wouldn't comment. He just wouldn't talk to any of them. There were other churches and ministers who also weren't buying what he was selling, and they'd hosted his revival. One minister in Canada did an interview after Branham left and said basically that several of the people Branham claimed to heal, they died like right after he left. What's that about? The church had actually done their own follow-up investigation after he left, and what they found after going through all the testimony is that not only did lots of people actually die shortly after his visit, not a single person reported they had healed from whatever ailment they were hoping to have healed. Here's a quote from that Canadian minister. Quote, their expectations had been raised so high, only to be dashed after all the excitement was over. Some seemed to experience a momentary relief from pain, but all too many would discover no lasting benefit. And by that time, the healer would be too far away to be questioned or to explain. The sick person would then simply be forced to accuse himself of lack of faith, or in some cases, throw his faith overboard. This stuff is where I draw the line. Not only are you not healing people, you're encouraging them not to seek actual medical care. That's doing harm. That's wrong. In Washington, D.C., there was a little girl named Carol Stuber. She was nine years old. Her mother asked Branham to pray for her, and Branham told her that her daughter Carol was healed and would live. So Carol's mother, Kate,
canceled a scheduled visit to St. Christopher's Hospital in Philadelphia where she was going to get her kid cancer treatment. Carol died three weeks after Branham prayed for her. In California in 1951, Branham declared a four-year-old with a rare brain condition healed. His name was Donnie Morton. Donnie died six months later. Imagine that trauma for the parents. This guy that you trusted told you your kid was healed. It's horrible. He ran into trouble in Europe too, not just in the States. Um, There was a translator he had working with him who later admitted he was really uncomfortable with how Branham operated and how he failed to acknowledge that he wasn't actually healing people. And in Norway, they ended up limiting how many meetings he could hold because of all the allegations he was a fake. And the Directorate of Health in Norway actually stopped allowing him to lay hands on the sick people and sent in police to enforce the order. That huge meeting he had in South Africa in the 50s, he tried to go back in 1965, and the government said, sure, you can come back, but you're not going to hold any meetings here. Now, here's an interesting twist. Um, I don't think Branham was in it completely for the money. He wasn't good with money. I think he was in it for the notoriety and the sense of belonging, and he felt special because he wasn't very educated. He came from a poor family, and he just wanted to be um, in control, and he wanted to be heard. I think that's what this guy's deal was, but he wasn't flashy. Um, In fact, he started to struggle financially. So... In the early years of his tours, or what they called campaigns, donations were enough to cover the cost. But by 1955, he was losing money on these tours. On three in a row, he lost uh, $15,000, which would be like 150 grand today. And at one point, he thought he was going to have to quit and find another job. Uh, But then this group stepped in, the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International. I don't have time to go into this group, but it is it is strange. Um, I will say that. Um, but this organization stepped in and said, we're going to help you fund this project you've got here so that you can continue your faith healing and your prophecies and all that good stuff. He was in debt at that point, And the FGBMFI said, we're going to cover that too. You're good. Just keep doing your thing. Remember, all this time... Branham had all these other investors too, and it was like, where, where is the money going? Because you are taking donations. Um, so it was kind of strange. This came at a time when other Pentecostal denominations were beginning to withdraw their support, as more and more were catching on that this guy was not the real deal. So this whole financial situation sounds a little topsy-turvy doesn't it? Enter the IRS. In 1965, William Branham is charged with tax evasion. I'm going to end part one with that little tax evasion cliffhanger, but just know that we have barely even scratched the surface on this guy's life story. Next week, we'll talk about just how much his colleagues were making, 
we'll talk about um, how he influenced Jonestown and the Colonia Dignidad. We'll talk about how he severed ties with pretty much all the churches that had previously supported him and how controversial he became. And of course, we'll talk about his problematic legacy. So stay tuned and I'll see you next week.